Uh, now I know how Brother Bailey felt yesterday. So the last session before lunch after a dynamic message like that. And uh, here we are. I have to take some time though and thank you. Your hospitality has been extraordinary. Generosity's just been overwhelming. Just moments ago, this young man ran to Bethlehem to get me a drink of water. Uh, uh, I, I just mentioned I might like a drink of water, and the next thing I know, a cup of water appears. And uh, that doesn't surprise me. You all have been so good to us and so kind and so welcome. It's, uh, it's a little bit intimidating. To I am not an evangelist. I'm not an itinerant. I preach in my pulpit. Most of my preaching is in my pulpit. And I came here uh, with some fear and trembling. I know... Uh, your pastor and your elders are committed to strong hermeneutics, and they're all skilled homileticians, uh, and uh, I knew they'd be listening. Then Jeff Short shows up, our, our Bible scholar, <laughs> and then Brother Brian asked us to send a little bio, and I read Dr. Bailey's uh, Curricula Vitae, and I'm thinking... Uh, well, my wife likes me, and uh, <laughs> I got some cute grandkids. I don't know if you have time for pictures, and not intimidated at all, but uh, anyway, um, here we are. And, uh, but I must say, I do appreciate the five-page critique that Brother Bryant sent me Friday night after I preached. Uh, that should help me today. That's a joke. He didn't do that, but uh, I shouldn't give him ideas like that. Um, I love your pastor, uh, Bryant, and good to meet these new, uh, new, new friends, and um, just enjoy being. Pray for us as we travel back to Cincinnati to, today, and uh, pray for us next month. We are, Lord willing, going to be in Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, preaching. Uh, I'll be preaching there in part of a conference there, and uh, we're not um, world travelers or anything, so it's a, it's a big thing for us to be our second trip to uh, South America, and uh, we appreciate your prayers uh, for that and for our uh, church. I bring you greetings again from uh, the Addison Baptist Church, and uh, thank you again for your support of Brother Isaac Kyle and, and uh, Brother Daniel Pearson. He's not our missionary, but he's becoming more and more involved in our uh, work there, and we, we thank God for both of them and appreciate your mission heart. In your Bibles uh, today, we want to do... Uh, my English Bible says final words for this paragraph, and that's a good, uh, good summary. This is the uh, challenge, uh, working while we wait. We'll just read the text here first. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse number 14. Therefore, oh, we've seen that word before. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, more about that in a moment, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care 
that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, I ask you to bless your written word that we've read and the living word that we will worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here we are in uh, the apocalyptic book of 2 Peter. Alvin Toffler, a self-styled futurist, published a book in 1970, which became a six million copy seller called Future Shock. He gave us the phrase uh, information overload. He uh, told us that future shock is the physical and psychological distress suffered by one unable to cope with rapid uh, social and technological change. In 1980, he would write a second volume, a prescient volume, entitled Third Wave, in which he predicted the worldwide availability of the Internet. How many of you have heard of the Internet? <laughs> worldwide Web, anyone? www. Anybody with me? He predicted that. Not Al Gore. <laughs> Alvin Toffler. He also predicted cable television. I know you've heard of cable. How many of you have heard of television? How many of you remember when there were not televisions? Any, any, how many of you remember when you got your first television? Anybody? My audience is getting younger and younger. <laughs> cable television and mobile communications. Mobile communication devices, not just walkie-talkies, fellas, but mobile personal communication devices, untethered, mobile, mobile, that's what mobile means. How many of you have a mobile communication device? Turn it off, <laughs> or, or put it on silent if you're using your... Your digital, Brother uh, Bailey said, we, you might be using a digital copy of the Bible, so that's okay. Um, or you might be microblogging right now this conference, and that's okay too. I, I do that a little bit. I microblog a little bit. Alvin Toffler said that our society was changing so rapidly and so quickly that many people are enduring psychological post-traumatic stress syndrome from the rapidity of the changes. We're like the frog in the kettle that's slowly being boiled, and many of us don't notice it or don't understand it. But Christians live in a culture where change is happening so rapidly that we sometimes uh, are shocked ourselves and we don't, 
We lose our confidence in whether our message still matters, our ministry still matters. And I'm, I'm here to say, not on my authority, but on the authority of God's word, our message still matters. Our message is ever more needful now. And I also like to point out, as a historian wannabe, there have been times when things have changed very, very rapidly before. And though this may be unusual change and rapid change, um, the invention of the printing press radically changed culture and societies too. The, the idea that everyone would be taught to read, that was a, that was a revolutionary event uh, hundreds of years ago. And so there are often times when uh, technology and information has seemed to overwhelm the culture. And uh, I would also point out that it, with the invention of the printing press, uh, Christians were able to harness that technology to great effect. And in many ways, uh, God used that to launch the, the Reformation and all the good things that came through the Reformation. And uh, many of the things we enjoy today uh, as to, in tools of ministry are, are because of technological advantages uh, that we, we have. So what ought we to do here? And I think this paragraph uh, sums it up real well. There are four imperatives in this paragraph, four uh, commands, four instructions that uh, uh, the Apostle Peter says, these are the four things that you should do. Uh, the world is uh, coming to an end. Uh, this age is coming to an end. And here are four things that you should be doing as you're waiting, looking for uh, the day of the Lord. Whatever your eschatology may be, we can agree, I hope, that Jesus is coming again. He's personally, literally coming again. Uh, there are many aspects to that coming, just as there were in his first coming. His first coming included his birth, uh, his childhood, his young life, his, um, his baptism, his public ministry. His first coming, of course, included his death, his burial, his resurrection, his uh, ministry of 40 days, his ascension. And so the second coming also will have several uh, aspects to it. And your pastors can certainly fill you in on what they are. We're looking for the Lord. We're looking for our Savior to return. This in like manner, uh, Acts chapter 1 says. And so we have four commands. And he's very clear, it's very clear that it's given in the imperative mood. These are the four things to do. There's a lot of information here. But before I give you the commands, I just want to point out Something that I noticed again just a few days ago as I was reading through chapter 3. Before uh, Peter gives these commands, over and over again in chapter 3, he invokes this word, beloved. Verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, verse 17, he refers to Paul as his beloved brother. 
In verse 1, he's, he's reminding those he loves about the prophecies of God. Verse 8, he's reminding them about the promises of God. Uh, verse 14, he's talking about the peace that we can enjoy from God, even in the midst of all these cataclysmic uh, events. And then in verse 17, he is talking about perseverance, which, which the brothers already explained to us and preached to us. I don't have to go into any detail there. But he addresses them with this endearment. He says, uh, I love you and I want you to know this. And I could just say this as a, as a side note. I think the, the tone that is so often lost when crisis comes or when cultural change is happening, uh, the, what we lose first often is our, our love for others. Uh, fear drives out love and we become afraid. We see cultural change, much of it may be detrimental and shocking, and we, we lose our love for sinners. We lose our love for lost people. We lose our love for our neighbors, which Jesus said is basically everyone. Everyone's our neighbor. We lose our love. Uh, we keep the, the imperative mood. We're still full of counsel and instruction, but we, we lose our love. And I, I, I think we ought to be more like Peter. I think we ought to be more loving. We ought to be more compassionate. We ought to remember that we also were once lost and blind and God loved us while we were yet sinners. We, we should be able to love those who are yet sinners. Should we not? My motto for my ministry the last 15 or so years has been something simple. I, I repeat it a lot. And that is truth without love leads no one. Truth without love leads no one. But love without truth leads nowhere. If you could keep the balance of those two things, speaking the truth in love and loving people with the truth, you're not really loving people if you don't give them the truth. You're not just loving people if you say, well, you just do whatever you want to do. You just be you and I'll be me. No, we have to speak the truth. But we've got to love them too. And I, I appreciate that about Peter. Because I'm not sure Peter temperamentally was the most loving of people. He could be loud and abrasive and annoying. He could be uh, terribly flawed. I'm glad he and Paul are getting along here in this book here. Uh, it's good to know they've, they've had some struggles. Peter's had some struggles sometimes. Um, Peter was not shy about contradicting the Lord. He was wrong, but he was not shy about it. He had the embarrassment of having to be taken to school by the Apostle Paul one time. Peter's conduct had become contradictory to the gospel. And Paul had to confront him. I, th I think they reconciled. And I think by, based on what Peter writes in First and Second Peter, I, th I think Peter got straightened out. You know, Peter reminds me of, the, the, of me. I sometimes get crossways with the way the Lord wants me to do things. And I have to go back and say, I was wrong. Uh, Lord, I, 
I need to repent and I need to correct something and I need to renew my purpose. And uh, now maybe, you're, maybe you're not like that. Maybe you never have to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've, I'm kind of losing my heart. I'm losing, losing my head and I need to stop. And Peter reminds me, as he says this endearing, y'all, I love you. He says, I love you. I wouldn't, I, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you this. You know, when somebody who loves you tells you something, you, you should listen very, very close. We should listen very, very closely to our Lord in his scripture because really the Bible is, is a love letter. That may sound sentimental or emotional, but... God wrote a book because, because he's a God of love. We don't need the Bible to know that God's a God of wrath. Now, the Bible helps us understand about God's wrath, but I mean, creation and conscience declare us the, the, the Godhead and the, the power of God, but God's word <laughs> declares his love to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, uh, say that just as uh, the background here. All right, quickly, I know uh, lunch awaits. Number one, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, and by the way, this is a, a present participle, so that means it's simultaneous to the action of the main verb, right, Brother Brian? Nod your head there. So we're waiting simultaneously while we, while we do these four things. We're watching and waiting. We're looking, expecting the return of Christ, but we're working also. And he's going to give us our job description. And so he says, while you are waiting for these, be diligent. Imperative number one, conduct yourself in a certain way. Be diligent. This is a familiar word. 2 Timothy 2. Um, King James had it study. That's the way I memorized it. Study. But the word means be diligent or uh, pay attention or pursue excellence, someone said. Conduct yourself in a certain way. You're a servant of God. You're a messenger of God. You're a, 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 an ambassador for Christ. Conduct yourself in a, in a very specific way. Uh, devote yourself to skill and ability. Uh, do study the Word. Learn what God's Word says and long to know more about God's Word. Conduct yourself in a specific way. This is, it, it's imperative for Christians when the world is uh, in chaos and, and uh, crisis for Christians to conduct themselves in a certain way. Someone needs to remain calm. That, that would be you and I. When the uh, accident happens or the disaster happens, we rely on the, the first responders we, we expect them to be calm. Some, sometimes we get very anxious with them because we think they should go faster or they should be more uh, quick. And we realize sometimes they seem to be so deliberate 
and so systematic. And and the reason for that is because they know that faster is not always better. Rushing and uh, recklessness is not always useful. They, They remain calm. If you've had occasion, times to be at the emergency room and Recently, we've had to be there with our parents, and, and uh, you're, you're concerned about them, and someone's fallen or someone's been in an accident. But you know, the best emergency room doctors and nurses, they remain calm. I've been watching them for a long time. I've been watching how they, and I, I see the anxious parents, and I see the anxious spouses, and and uh, please, please do something. And the doctors, the best doctors and the best nurses are say, they, they remain calm. They begin to issue orders. They begin to diagnose. They begin to assess. They begin to uh, bring out the, the instruments and listen and watch. And they assess before they react. And I'm, uh, the more I see that, I'm thinking... You know, that's the good time to be calm, isn't it? Someone needs to assess and someone needs to know what's happening. And so Peter says, conduct yourself, be diligent uh, to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, we, we might focus on the spot or the blemish but, and about character and, and, and uh, doing things right. But I want to focus on that word peace there. Christian, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1, correct? There is peace with God, Philippians tells us, and then there is the peace of God. We have peace because of the judicial declaration of Christ, righteousness imputed to us, our sins to him. We are no longer at war with God. But we can also enjoy the peace of God. We, We should exemplify that. Lost people and immature Christians should look at us and say, they seem to be so calm. They seem to be so... uh, Brother Bailey talked about someone who has more reason to grumble than anyone, and yet he doesn't grumble at all. He must have peace. He's not ignoring the problem. He's not oblivious to the problem. He just chooses not to grumble. He's at peace. That's the first imperative. Be diligent to exhibit. And, and you, you have to be experiencing this. I'm not asking you to fake it. I'm not asking you to pretend. You really can't pretend. Calm and peace isn't really something you can just project. Uh, your, your nerves will betray you. you, you if you're not peace at peace, you, you can't fake that. Nor, nor should you. But the first command is conduct yourself in a certain way. Then he, he goes on, he says, um, be diligent to be at peace. And then verse 15, and count, that's the second imperative. This imperative is, is fascinating to me because it's in the middle voice. 
English has active and passive. How many of you grammar, English grammar is your favorite subject in school? Anybody? If you love Jesus, you love grammar. <laughs> he's, he's the word. Now, A.M. Fairborn said, he who is no grammarian is no divine. But uh, anyway, where was I? Active, I hit the ball. That's active voice, right? What happens in passive voice? I was hit by the ball. That's passive. What's middle voice? Well, English doesn't really do middle voice too well. But Greek does and a few other languages. Middle voice is when the actor receives the action in some way. I hit myself with the ball. I guess that would be sort of an English. This, this verse, this word, is uh, it's something you do and it, it, uh, it acts on you. Like thinking about something or considering something. Now you might not think that a command to consider or think is, is a thing to do in a crisis, but sometimes thinking is the best thing to do. It's reflecting or counting or considering. I, I think a synonym is reckon uh, in the Bible. To evaluate. And, and it affects us. He says, you need to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Then he goes into a discussion, I think, that actually goes into the third imperative, which is take care. But this counting is, you need to think about something. You need to consider something. You need to conclude something. It isn't just speculating or philosophizing or imagining. It's counting something to be true and concluding that something is a certain way and you're going to believe it and behave a certain way because Second Peter is really about two things. It's about behaving uh, and also beware of uh, false teachers. It says you need, to be, you need to be living a certain way and you, but you also need to be aware that there are some false teachers out there who are trying to lead you astray. He'll deal with that here in this paragraph as well. But he says, uh, you need to count the uh, long-suffering of our, of our Lord, the patience of our Lord, as salvation. I've done some reading on that. That's not always simple in the commentaries. What is the patience, counting the patience of the Lord as salvation? What does that mean? We know what long-suffering or patience is. We think we know what salvation is, but what it is to count the patience of God as salvation? It's a good question. Is it a predatory accusative or a double accusative? If you say, I don't know, I have to agree. I don't know. The grammarians are sort of disagreed about this. But I do know he's saying that whatever the patience of God is, it's salvation. You could count God's patience as salvation. One writer says, what he's saying is, God is patient 
he says this earlier in the chapter. God is patient, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Why? But that all should come to repentance. I think his patience is with all who believe. And uh, it's another sermon, but I think he's saying that God's patience and God's timetable is the day of salvation. Why is God allowing things to go on like they're going now? Because he's long-suffering. He's patient. He's got an eternal purpose that he's working out. There is a sewer of corruption flowing through our world. no, No disagreement. But there's also a river of grace flowing simultaneously. You say, why doesn't God just eliminate all the sin and all the wickedness and all the violence? Uh, he will, and he, he w- that day is coming. But the age of grace will also close. That today is the day of salvation. Again, eschatologically, how that age closes and uh, what the opportunities are, I leave that to your pastor, but I'm saying this is the age of grace. This is the go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what we're about, right? That's who we are. We are missionary Baptists. Why? Because it's the, it's the day of salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek and to Samaritans who are Jews and Gentiles and to every ethnicity and geography and generation, the gospel is going and going and going. And here it is, 2023, and the gospel still going. And this weekend we've heard the gospel again and again. Never hear it too many times. This is the age of grace. So God's patience is salvation. It, It very well could be that, but he says, I think his point here is, don't be upset when you think, well, the world's out of control. Uh, there's so much wickedness. There's oh, it's an incredible depravity. And really, I try to remind Christians, it's like when you read Romans 1, that first century world was no walk in the park either. The wickedness, the the waywardness, the depravity of the Roman Greek culture was, I, I think they could have given our culture competition in, the, in wickedness. You say, well, it's got to be more wicked now because it's nearer the end of the world. But that's because of recency bias. That's because this is where we're living And of course we're closer to the return of Christ than were they. They thought they were near the return of Christ. I explain that because I think this age is bracketed by the first coming and the second coming. So anyone between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is in the last days. They're in the times in which we live. But we need to count. You think, well... God is sovereign and God is powerful and God is holy. Why doesn't he judge and do? Uh, He will. 
Just be patient and be thankful that you have an opportunity yet to take the gospel to your neighbor, to your loved one, uh, to Brazil, to China, to... So we conduct ourselves in a certain way, we count in a certain way, and then he says, uh, next, the next imperative says, uh, you know, Paul has written some things, and by the way, he here makes it clear that what Paul writes is part of scriptures as the other scriptures. This is part of the canonicity of the scriptures. But he says, verse number 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, what do we know? Well, we know that the end of the world is coming. We know that judgment's coming. The day of the Lord's coming. Uh, the return of Christ is coming. He says, you know this beforehand, and that's the word for prognosis. I talked about doctors. We all know about diagnosis. The prognosis is where the doctor says, this is where it, this will probably go. These are, these, this is what's wrong, and this is the prognosis. If we do this or do that, it is knowing, analyzing where it's going. He says, so... Here's the advantage that you have, Christian. You look at the world and you think, oh, this is terrible. This is wicked. This is awful. This is just unbelievably bad. You, you can be calm and say, but I, I know where this is going. For one thing, it's a great place for the gospel. <laughs> Isn't it not? Where, where would be a better place to preach the gospel than to lost sinners? Well, the, the next best place would be to preach the gospel to save sinners. We enjoy the gospel, don't we? But I can't think of a better place to preach the gospel than to lost sinners. It's the power of God unto salvation. You think, well, if there were some sinners, we'd go, really? You can't find any sinners? You, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. They're right around us. We are in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. But what a great place for the gospel. What a great place for telling people about Jesus. So he says here in verse 17, therefore, take care. That's the third imperative. Take care. And I'm going to use a more aggressive word. I'm going to say this is a call to combat. He says, he says, gear up. That you are not carried away with error. This is, this is a time for combat. If you remember the scene in Ford versus Ferrari, um, Henry the Ford is talking to Shelby. They're trying to win the Le Mans, right? Uh, I, shouldn't, I hope I don't have to tell you a whole story. It's a long movie. But uh, Henry the Ford wants to know why they failed their first attempt to win the, the Le Mans. Shelby had tried to produce a car that would compete against Ferrari. He failed. And uh, Shelby tells him, he says, well, you can't win a race by committee. And he says, Henry, the Ford, takes him, Henry Ford takes him over to a window and he says, you see that little building over there? He said, this is not the first time Ford's gone to war in Europe. 
says three out of every five bombers came through that little building over there in World War II. You think Franklin Roosevelt won the war? Think again. Now, if you're not a Ford man, you don't get as excited about that or not. You know, you know, oh, big deal. If you are a Ford man, I, rem- I remember as a child, I was, I was that F- Ford winning the Le Mans, that was a big deal in my, my little neighborhood. We beat Ferrari. I didn't even know what a Ford was. I didn't even know what a Ferrari was. I just know we won. <laughs> we won. That's like, that's like big deal. And Henry Ford tells him, he says, go to war, Shelby, go to war. And spoiler alert, Shelby gets total control of the program, or almost, goes to war, and guess who won the next Le Mans? Anybody? Ford did. I hope nobody's lost track already. They're very faint for lack of hunger here. It's like it's, I'm losing you fast. Ford, Ford won. They went to war. Now, what's my illustration? Christians, it's time to go to war. Be, but be careful. Make sure you know who the enemy is. The enemy was not really Ferrari. As Shelby told him, he says, we've, we've got him right where we want him. The last lap before our car broke down, he says... We'd clock 218 miles an hour down the Mosan Strait. And, he, and Ferrari is scared to death that you will give me. You know. Now my point is, the enemy was Ford. Ford's own enemy in that race was Ford, not Ferrari. Ford had the engineers, they had the money, they had the technology, they had the man. Their enemy was themselves. And Christians in this war, lost sinners are not our enemy. It's, it's, they're really not. We're our own worst enemy. It's time to go to war. It's time to wage war against the flesh. It's time to take care that we're not carried around about by false doctrines and false teachers. We're to, we're to go to war here. Christian life is a warfare. Ephesians 6, take the whole armor of God. And I think sometimes Christians think like, yes, that means we need to tell sinners how lost they are. Oh, I don't deny that the law has its purpose. But our, our hatred is not for sinners. Our hatred is for sin. And beginning with us. Beginning with me. I, I need to go to war against the sin in my life. So, we are called to conduct ourselves a certain way. Imperative number one, we're told to count. A certain way, then we go to combat. And number, number last, we are to grow. Verse 18, but grow. That's the fourth imperative. It's really the strangest imperative. I, I, when someone tells me, 
Now behave in a certain way. You go to a, uh, a formal wedding and generally there is a, uh, hopefully there is a wedding planner who tells everybody where to stand and what to do. When I was younger, I resented that. The older I got, I'm thinking, boy, I hope there's somebody here to tell us what to do. <laughs> Having somebody tell you what to do is not always the bad thing. Uh, sometimes that's a good thing. It's like, uh, what, what to do? When to do it? What's the cue? What's... So I understand conduct in a certain way. Uh, counting, considering, reflecting, concluding. Here's where we are. Here's what we should be doing. I under, even understand combating error. I, I, I believe there is a polemical role for the pulpit. We do have to warn people about false teachers. We can't just be positive. Sometimes we have to be negative. Because sometimes people in our pews, they're watching false teachers and they don't know they're false teachers. And they're a little more eloquent than we are. And they're a little more impressive outwardly than we are. And, and our people aren't hearing the error. We have to say, this is error. This is false. This is the true. And I understand a little bit about that. But this imperative, telling someone, grow, that's, that's hard, isn't it? That seems kind of... How do you, I don't know if you've tried this with your plants. I'm, I'm told you need to talk to your plants. Come on, tomato plant. It would be helpful if they responded and said, like, I need a little more water. Uh, I, I need a little vitamin or something. Or could you get the bugs off of me or whatever? It would be helpful. It's, it's like, but just commanding something to grow, that seems kind of strange to it. We sometimes tell our children, like, well, you, you need to grow, be strong, and and whatever we're selling that day, like green beans or whatever, we say, yeah, eat your green beans and you'll grow. I'm not sure we really believe it, but <laughs> it's what's for dinner. So, yeah, eat, eat, you'll grow. And, of course, you all have that phase where your children, you're thinking, slow down. <laughs> Somewhere around their teen years, it's like, don't grow up too fast. Or, what is this command to grow here? Well, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it means to learn. It, it, it means to know some things. And I, I'm, I'm drawing to an end here, I promise you. Because chapter 1 is very eloquent about this. Chapter 1 is very eloquent. He says, verse number 5, chapter 1, For this very reason, make every effort... There's that be diligent again, that make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he gives you this spiritual addition, this spiritual mathematics, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. He says, add those to your faith. I would stop here and put a footnote in and say, it's encouraging to me that those are things that we add to our faith. Those are not things that have to be present for us to have faith. Sometimes our faith is like us. It's so weak. It's so... You know, faith is the instrument of salvation, 
but it's God who saves us. It isn't how great our faith is, it's how great our God is. Now, I, I know we have to be born again. I know we have to be quickened. I know we have to be made alive. But I, I sometimes think the halting, uh, befuddled faith that I had when I was saved at eight years old, and I think, boy, I know so much more now than... than I, but you know, I don't believe now any more than I did then. I just, I just know more about it. But I was saved when I was eight years old. I, I put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I believe he died for me, was buried for me, rose again for me. And, and, I, and I agreed with God that I was a sinner. And I agreed with God that he was the only Savior and I was saved. I'm, I'm glad I, I, no one told me like, well, you could be saved if, you would, if your faith is virtuous enough or knowledgeable enough or you've got enough self-control or you'll be steadfast and... A lot of godliness, you need to work that in, and then, then, then we can talk about whether you're saved or not. I was saved before I began to ever add anything to my faith. Maybe you're here and you're, you struggle with that. You struggle with your assurance. I don't know many Christians that don't. And I think Peter is talking to believers here, and he says, you need to add some things to your faith. And... Uh, I know you've, your pastors have preached to you different sermons about these virtue... Uh, I got some real formal academic definitions. Virtue is I will do the right thing. Knowledge, if I do not know what the right thing is, I'll find out. That's very technical. But that's what knowledge is. It isn't just knowing facts and figures. and It's, I, I don't know what to do here. I, I, need to, I need someone to help me. Good news, if any man lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives it liberally. You say, well, I don't know what the right thing is to do. Find out. Self-control, I will not lose my temper while I'm figuring out what to do. Steadfastness, I will continue to do what's right even when it's hard. Godliness, I will reverence God and respect others while I'm trying to figure out what is right to do. See, sometimes we, we become so proud that we're doing the right thing that we actually undo what we were trying to do. I don't know if that makes any sense, but godliness is simply being humble about what you do know and what you are trying to do. You're just a sinner saved by grace that God's teaching and training and molding and conforming to the image of His Son Brotherly affection, I will love others who may not know, who may not be, who may not be saved. They may, if they're saved, they may not know what I know. They may not be committed like I'm committed, but I'm going to love them. I'm going to be kind to them. I'm going to have affection for them. I'm not going to sit up on some pedestal and say, well, I wish everybody else was as good a Christian as I am. That's really not helpful. And then the, the last thing you add is love. You think, boy, I think you should have started there, preacher. You should say, love everybody. I love the way he builds this, though, because loving people is hard. Have you noticed that? Some of you are downright impossible. To, no, <laughs> not naming any names here. Not, 
think of anybody in particular, but some people are, I got to love that guy. It's like, I was proud that I didn't kill him. Uh, that's my standard of righteousness. I, I'm glad he starts out with doing the right thing. I don't love that guy, but I, I think the right thing here is not, do not punch him. I don't know if you're honest enough to admit that. Sometimes that's a battle won right there. I, I, that fellow, so I don't love him. I am so angry right now, I could, uh, I'm not going to say anything. That's probably a long way from loving him, but that's the good time to be quiet, isn't it? That's what virtue is. I don't know how to deal with this guy. I, I need some knowledge. Well, sometimes you do nothing. Sometimes you just leave it in the hands of the Lord. Sometimes you just take it. That takes self-control. You think, well, I'll come back tomorrow. He'll be in a better mood. You come back tomorrow, he's in a worse mood. And what you need there is steadfastness. Go back to plan A. Lord, I want to do what's right here. I, I, I don't know how to deal with this guy. I don't want to lose my temper. Lord, help me to respect you and help me to reverence you. Love sometimes the last stage of um, ministry. Now you might say it should be first, but I'll go with First Peter here. Adding to your faith, that's imperative number four. Growing up. He says, conduct yourself a certain way. Count a certain way. Combat a certain way. Continue. A certain way. Those are the imperatives. Enjoy the prophecies of a God who loves you. Enjoy the promises of a God who loves you. Enjoy the peace of a God who loves you. Persevere because God will finish the good work that He started in you. We'll work till Jesus comes. Alvin Toffler correctly identified the technological trends that would sweep through America and the Western world and the whole world, really, um, long 50-some years ago. I'm told now that I, I don't even understand the measurements of data. They, they lost me at terabyte. I, I've heard of terabytes and gigabytes before that. Now there's some kind of petabyte, something, something, and there's something else. And I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't grasp how much information we have. I think I'm suffering some future shock with how much data is available and how much information is available, how much access to information but you know what? I just need to calm down. Be calm. Conduct myself in a certain way. Count God faithful. God's purposes. He's working all things after the counsel of His own will. That's not only true in my life. That's true in the life of this world. In the life of His universe. He's working all things together. I just need to trust Him. I need to go to war with the sin that's in my heart. 
And I need to continue to grow. I am, as a pastor, ask questions that I have never heard the question before. It's not that I haven't studied for it. I never even knew it was a question. Now, I don't mean to suggest to you that the truth has changed or the Word of God has changed. I, I don't believe that at all. That's, that's my anchor. That's my hope. But the culture changing around me, the, I, I don't recognize it many days. I just don't. And, and I know it could be, I could just be old curmudgeon and like, well, you just get off my lawn. I could be that guy. But actually, I just need to do what the Bible says. My mission remains the same. My message remains the same. My motive should remain the same. My master remains the same. And that brings us to the Lordship. This is our Father's world. This is our Father's business. This is our Father's house. Uh, this church is a house of the Lord. Believers are tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. I hope you'll understand what I say when I say, what a, what a glorious time to be alive. What a gifted time to be in the ministry as, as believers. Those same tools that may terrify us and overwhelm us can also be used to broadcast the gospel. Our sermons on Sermon Audio Last month went into 37 different countries, English-speaking countries, 37. The same technology that's used for evil and terrible destruction can also be harnessed like the printing press when Gutenberg was printing the Bible and putting it in in the hands of common people. And then men like William Tyndale and others came along and said, and Luther, they need, it needs to be in German. It needs to be in English. It needs to be in the common language of the people. And here you sit today, and you probably have a dozen copies of the Bible. So we need to conduct ourselves a certain way. We need to count a certain way. We need to combat sin. We need to continue. We'll work Till Jesus comes. Father, bless this good church, this people gathered. Thank you for the messages I've heard, the music I've heard, the ministry I've been encouraged uh, to do. Thank you for Pastor uh, Brian and his dear wife and, and those who labor with them and lift up their holy hands. How encouraging to see a church that loves the Lord, that loves the things of God. Help us to work, be faithful. Help us to trust you, be patient in you. In Jesus' name, amen.